0: Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 26. I am your host, Stephen Oki. I know you may have missed us over the last couple months as we've been on a little bit of a hiatus, but Mike and I have been working on some interviews and some other projects, and so we, we took a little unplanned time away, but we are happy to be back to finish out season two. And we come back with this very excellent episode where I spoke with Trisha Bruce, a sociologist at Maryville College. We talked about how she became interested in studying the sociology of religion, the place of parishes in U.S. Catholic polarization, and the importance of diversity within the church. Uh, We also talked a fair amount about the motivational properties of the musical Hamilton and our shared desire for a bluegrass setting of the mass. If you enjoy the episode, you should also check out uh, the new book, Polarization in the U.S. Catholic Church, which Tricia was a co-editor of. It came out from Liturgical Press earlier this year. If you enjoyed the episode, you can, as always, leave us feedback here on the post or on iTunes. And thank you very, very much for listening. Today for the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm talking with Trisha Bruce of Maryville College. Trisha, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: you are an associate professor of sociology. Is that right?
1: I am. Yep, that's right. I've been at my current institution, Maryville College, for almost ten years. Holy cow! Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh,
0: what is Maryville? What like what? What's the thing to know about Maryville College?
1: Maryville College is a small liberal arts school. It has an association with the Presbyterian Church. And as far as our geography goes, we are right in between the city of Knoxville, which is the third largest city in Tennessee, and the Great Smoky Mountains. So we have good access to hiking and uh, the beauties of the natural world.
0: (laughs) That sounds really lovely.
1: It is. It's quite nice.
0: So the first question I like to start with people is, how did you come to do the work that you do? Usually when I talk to theologians, I ask how they come to do theology. But you're you're a sociologist and you focus right. on sociology of religion. So I'm kind of right. curious what the, the path was for you to come to, to that study, to that field, to that career.
1: Sure, absolutely. And sociology is not one of those areas that you – you know, I, I certainly didn't dress up as a sociologist for Halloween <laughs> when I was five, for example. So, you know, you can't take a, a more circuitous route to it. But I certainly was interested in people very early on. You know, I, hmm. I was curious. I was and still am the person who hangs out by the window just watching You know, to see what's happening. I, I consume lots of news, including, you know, odd news and, and strange stories. But, but I think... I think as far as my childhood goes, you know, one thing that that led to that interest in, in people, and also in my interest my interest in religion and in Catholicism had to do with the fact that my dad was in the military for mm. a number of years, and he served in the army. He was a physician in the army. He's now in uh, private practice, but but that meant that as a kid, we moved. <laughs> we moved a lot. Okay. So my routine growing up was picking up and starting over in places that were wholly unfamiliar. And so that meant Mm. learning about the people, learning about the community. Uh, And then with the, with Catholicism in particular, you know, having grown up in a Catholic family, my mom's an Irish Catholic, we, you know, the church, the Catholic church, the parish, especially was the first stop. And it often okay. was the place where, uh, you know, we would make those, those friends and those connections. And it, uh, you know, became a, a place where, for me, I, I gained a number of, of friendships and got to sort of explore some of that, you know, both personal engagement with faith, but also curiosity about, about people and what faith meant to people. And so, you know, hmm. that was certainly a big part of my, my early life growing up, and then once I went to college, I uh, got exposed to, you know, different kinds of, of uh, religions and, and experiences with religion and levels of relig- religiosity and, you know, was was still immersed very much so in my own Catholic faith, but also realizing mm-hmm. that occasionally that would come with apologetics, you know, in
0: mm, sure.
1: non-Catholic context. And uh, and I had a a number of experiences in college, too, that really grew my interest in sociology in particular, especially one one summer I went to a I volunteered at uh, a camp. It was a it, it was run by the Missionary Cynical Volunteers. And it was done in Connecticut, and it was essentially a camp for entire families, and these families oh. would come together from low-income areas, in, mostly from New York and New Jersey areas, and their life experiences were wholly different from mine. And that was a, uh, a pivotal moment for me as far as you know, beginning to see inequality, beginning to see the impact of, of race and class in a more real-lived way, and then also just seeing what religion had to do with it. So my
0: mm-hmm. my
1: questions sort of started circling even more from from then on.
0: What do you think from that kind of experience drew you to want to ask kind of the academic questions about the, you know, social change, social movements, the things like that that lead to that okay. situation. Versus say like, I mean, you, you grew up as, you know, Catholic family, Catholic background, why that versus like uh, ministry or, or social work or. Kind of like the, the hands-on right. uh, type type question or type of careers. I
1: think it was a, a few different things. I mean, one thing that I, I started to realize is how much of religion is shaped by Social factors around Mm. us—you know, whether it's family or marriage or relationships or dynamics of of race and class and politics—you know, there's there's so much that informs who we are and how we navigate our both our relationship to religion, but then also the the way we experience it together collectively. And Mm -hmm. for me, sociology was a way to unpack some of those questions. You know, it, it provides a a really useful set of tools to understand religion and society, and religion and practice. You know, mm-hmm. for for example, one of the big concepts that sociologists often refer to comes from C. Wright Mills, and he talks about the sociological imagination, and it's a way in which we can situate our our own autobiographies and the biographies hey. of others in in time and in context, and you know, it helps. For me and, and certainly for my students, too, when I teach to see the world, not just in terms of our own agency and our own decisions, but also in terms of how larger structures shape that and and help us understand different outcomes, you know. Uh, yeah. And I admit, too, that sociology was a way for me to really be immersed in the world of religion, but I was not a big fan of the apologetics that I, I went through <laughs> in, in college and otherwise. And, uh, you know, I, there, you know, this is, this is tough stuff and, you know, yeah. me dealing with the tough questions that that religion raises, which, you know, certainly it's, it's not necessarily easier in sociology, but it, it gives a certain lens and perspective that allows me to, I don't know bring a different side to it that uh and and help others to see religion as a social reality as much as it is a, a mm-hmm. deeply personal and intimate one
0: something you said that i i wanted to ask about is you you mentioned trying to get students to see you know something beyond their own agency and see right. the power of social pressures and social movements things like that i'm partly curious uh, I don't know how to put it, like what what your success rate is right. <laughs> at doing that, but also maybe more importantly, like how is it that you do that with students, or how how you kind of demonstrate that kind of thing? And I, I ask in part because, I mean, I a lot of what I teach is is ethics, and okay. and I and I I teach some you know sort of personal stuff, and I teach some social stuff, but for so many students, it they see it as coming down. It's always down to like my choice, what I do, right, my deal, and the ability to imagine that there are things far beyond their control that are shaping how these things work is, is very challenging.
1: I agree. I agree. I think as a, as a sociologist, as a teacher and as someone who lives in the laboratory that I study, which is the society and world, Mm. uh, you know, I think that's a really
0: good way to put that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But we can't ever leave the lab, right? It's quite difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for students, you know, one of the places that I start is the place that they know best, which is themselves. You know, so if you can begin mm-hmm. to think, OK, how is it that culture shapes who I am, the choices that I've made? You know, one of the exercises that we do early on in my introductory class uh, has to do with with culture. And I ask them some questions about, well, why are you here at Marital College? And mm. at first they'll say things like, well, you know, I thought the campus was pretty and I wanted the interaction with my professors and whatnot. And then I'll, I'll start diving a little deeper. Like, well, why really are you here? You know, why are you not in the military or why for first generation college students? Why was your dad not in college? Why was your mom not in college? Or what are some of the dynamics that shape what we perceive to be, mm-hmm individual choices uh but in fact are are shaped by these realities you know another example i give them too with the age at first marriage you know the age at first marriage now is higher than it's ever been but there was a time not too long ago where they would already be on a very different track based Mm -hmm. on on their age and so so what does that mean so as far as building that set of skills i think you know i i try i start there from that place that is uh, familiar to them and then from there they can get a better sense of how they might see others uh, having mm-hmm. different paths and different outcomes uh, that look a little bit different uh, than their own and I guess one one last thing I would just add on that front too is you know <laughs> Peter Berger is a sociologist well known and has done stuff in religion too quite uh, famously looked at the social construction of reality and he's one who said you know part of what we have to do is make the familiar look strange you know and it's it's, um, becoming a stranger to ourselves becoming a stranger to what we take so uh, we take for granted Uh, and to me that's you know that's one of the key things and the key skill sets of sociology is to make what looks so familiar look a little bit less so.
0: So when you are are teaching then and I know your your research is a lot in sociology of religion. Right. With with your students at Maryville, is is religion kind of an effective way to get at those questions or I'm kinda of, I'm kinda of wondering I, I mean I, I don't know. I know it's you said it's a Presbyterian church and it
1: is. Uh, yeah.
0: And all that and or pre- sorry, Presbyterian church affiliated school. Right. right. Like is there is there resistance to that, you know, making yourself and your context seem strange to you? Uh to, <laughs> is there resistance to that approach when it comes to religion?
1: Well, one thing that's interesting for me as someone who focuses especially on Catholicism is that Tennessee is actually the least Catholic state in the country. <laughs> so I was means, wondering about yeah, that. Yeah, it's number fifty. <laughs> it is number fifty at fifty. Uh, but you pair that with some of the findings on religiosity and it's actually one of the most religious states as far as mm-hmm. you know typical measures of, of religiosity so whether you attend and how strongly you affiliate and whatnot so it tends to be really high on those measures and then, uh, so it happens to be really low in terms of Catholic affiliation. But it's a, it's a, you know, it's a heavily Southern Baptist area in particular. And certainly some of our students are Presbyterian, but most, if they have an affiliation, most are, are Southern Baptist or non-denominational. So that does pre- present a particular context in which to raise these questions. But I think, you know, as, again, as a sociologist, I'm trying to let them think about that through The lens of things like structure and agency you know how do we become a stranger to something that is so personal and so familiar and Mm if i can help them gain some of that perspective and then also of course just through exposing them to different realities and and different understandings of the world then then they you know, I think are are receptive to it and, and able to apply that. You know, I, I often tell students too in my social religion class that, you know, when you're looking at religion through this perspective, it's it, it's it's not the only perspective. You know, it's like mm, it's sure. like looking for your lost keys only where you can turn on the light because it's easier to see there. You know, it doesn't mean that your mm-hmm. keys aren't somewhere else in a dark corner. Uh, so sometimes we <laughs> we use. Uh, you know a, a particular lens but it's certainly not the only lens through which we can understand ourselves in the world
0: do you do you find for yourself and, and i want to talk in a minute about your research because i've been reading the the polarization in the catholic the u.s catholic church book yeah and I, right. I was reading your essay the other night but before i, I turn to that one of the things i want to ask is for your own you know kind of uh, your own process and and in, in history the thinking about this this language of a uh, sort of Making what is familiar strange to yourself. Right. Do you? Is it challenging for you to integrate your your research and sociological approach to Catholicism with your sort of personal experience of Catholicism or your spirituality, religious life, uh, sort of however you wanted to put that. Right. Are the, are those things in in contest for you in some ways? Are they are they symbiotic? Are they uh, do they have an uneasy truce? I, I don't.
1: Yeah, I think there, there is probably always that for both on the sociology side and the religion side. You know, in sociology, anyone who studied religion for so long was looked at, and I would say even to some extent still today, was looked at with great skepticism, you know, as if mm-hmm. like they were <laughs> authentic sociologists because they're asking crazy questions. You know, even and of course, many of the folks in the Catholic tradition who sociologists who were asking this question were themselves not only Catholic, but but ordained priests, many of them or nuns. And and so they're you know, they're they're navigating a particular position that is different than my own. And and even in that case, you know, a very famous study or set of studies by a man named Joe Fichter. Who back in 1951 published a book about a parish, a study of a parish in New Orleans, and then his, you know, basically those in in charge of his, oh, I can't remember the the exact term that it was, but it, it, in the church, the hierarchy of the church basically came down and said he should not have published the study. It was raising <laughs> problems for the priests. And and it, w- it wasn't the local bishop who said that. It was I want to say it's provincial or something, but it was the person okay. who you know basically was supposed to be his supervisor, and huh. that did not go well for him. And that set a particular tone for how sociologists studied Catholicism and how yeah. Catholics were perceived by the church. So you know I think that circles back to your question just in the sense that there's always been this sort of uneasy relationship, even in the sense of on the religion side. So then I, you know, I, I tell folks, you know, in my family and, and, you know, my churches that I've attended over these years and that what I do, and there's this sort of uneasiness, like, I think the, this wonderful nun who, whom I, I love um, and was enormously influential on me as a a child, especially through my music and, and whatnot. You know, she made the passing comment at one point about, wow, well, you should be careful doing this kind of work. You know? <laughs> We're <laughs> asking these questions because there is there's, there is this perception of tension between
0: mm-hmm. faith
1: and the kinds of questions that sociologists ask about
0: faith. It's interesting hearing you say that because I, I would probably never have thought of that. But it, mm-hmm. I mean, it does parallel the... You know, this tension that you saw, I think, especially in the past in Catholicism, but even still today about, you know, the if especially if you're I mean, if you're ordained or right. religious life, that if you if you write the wrong thing or say the wrong mm-hmm. thing, there are power structures to to That's respond right. to you. That's right. And, it is. It, it, I guess it, it never occurred to me that that might have also been the case in other non-theology, non-non, yeah. you know, non-theology fields.
1: Yeah, so and sociology is a, a relatively young discipline, or certainly younger yeah. than some of these others. And and in the American context, you know, was still in, in many ways coming of age you know, over the last century or so. And so I think part of what the the church and and U.S. Uh, leaders, to use that as one example, have. Have been trying to navigate is, you know, how how is this a tool that can be useful to, um, but not conflicting with the church and and church teachings. And of course, as a sociologist, my response is always, well, we're, you know, sociologists have this great position of being able to better sort of take a picture of what society looks like at a given moment or or over time. It's like taking the temperature of something. So there's not necessarily a Normative angle to that. Mm-hmm. There, there is one, but it's not one that sociologists typically explore. You know, we hand that off and say, "Well, how, how do we deal with this? And what does this, what does this mean?" But you first have to understand the empirical reality behind that.
0: Yeah, you're not necessarily making the moral judgment. that exactly. the way it is is a is a good way to be. It's exactly. Just, this is what you see happening. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So I, I was reading, I was reading your essay in the the polarization text, and I was. I was very struck by it because I and it, it raised a lot of questions for me. Sure. But I was wondering if you would, for our listeners, kind of say, maybe the the key idea you're working with there, and and I, I get the impression that that's sort of part of the the next book you have coming out, the Parish and Place book? That's
1: right, that's right. So I've been, for the last several years, immersed in a study of what are called personal parishes, and it comes out of an allowance in canon law that basically says that most parishes, and most parishes that we're familiar with, are territorial in orientation, meaning that they have a prescribed set of boundaries around them. So those within the boundaries technically don't have to register at the parish, because that is your own parish. Now, we know that, that Catholics, especially American Catholics, make a lot of parish choices based on their preferences and otherwise, <laughs> but the basic default model of the parish is the territorial parish. Now, the exception to that in canon law is the personal parish, or a phrase that might be more familiar to folks is the national parish, which of course had its heyday, especially in you know early Catholic America, uh, before before restrictions on immigration before 1920 and before changes to canon law, which I won't go into. But anyway, there were of course scores and scores, hundreds of hundreds, really, of national parishes at at that time, um, and then. The emphasis then changed back to uh, territorial parishes being the default. But more recently, what's happened is that there, there is this other option for parishes that can serve niche populations of Catholics, whether by way of ethnicity, nationality, language, but also for some other reason. And that's really how canon law puts it, for some other reason, <laughs> and, which means that, as you can imagine, some bishops have gotten actually fairly creative in allocating parishes that either don't have territorial boundaries or they have a special purpose alongside their territorial boundaries. And these are modern personal parishes. And, and I'm saying that in the uh, post-1983, when the latest iteration of mm-hmm. canon law came out, which came out of Vatican II, but, but didn't actually get published until 19... 19- 83 and so my study has looked at that and and really the the chapter in the polarization piece looks at a particular part of that that teases out some ways that the uh, that personal parishes have created spaces for we could almost say ideological camps of catholics on mm-hmm. on various poles of the church and then the the broader project the book which is coming out with oxford university press next year is looking at how personal parishes essentially become a way for the church to respond to internal diversity and and also Mm. to manage that diversity from the top because you know Catholics uh, individual Catholics in some ways are already managing it by choosing parishes but yeah they're uh, sorting themselves that's right that's right they're sorting themselves but in this case personal parishes allow bishops to manage dioceses by creating these uh, dedicated spaces for particular groups of Catholics
0: so one thing I was wondering about with this is at least for, for the, the specific essay, you know, part of the context of it is talking about this question of why why the U.S. Catholic Church seems so polarized. And as I understand it, part of your point is uh, is that these kinds of parishes allow for, you know, that polarization to, to find a kind of uh, a structural place to be. There's a, a place that that set of people who follow that ideology can go. Right. And you talk, there's a, one of them is, you know, a, a, a Tridentine, you yeah. know, right, Latin, right, uh, sort of more traditional, more conservative parish. One is a more sort of social justice, mm-hmm. uh, highly inclusive parish.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One thing I, I'm wondering about is while the like specific version of this is different and the, the personal parish is maybe uh, a, a, a rejiggering of the, the national parish, is is this kind of I don't know enclaving is that mm-hmm. that different from what existed pre-Vatican II or even you know early 20th century late 19th century U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it is it fundamentally different or is it is it just ideologically different or
1: I, there are I think a, a couple differences one is just on the basis of of type you know there there's not really a model for personal parishes that are not national in orientation Mm -hmm. pre 1983 and and the the other thing too is just the is the origins of them because Mm. what you know one of the places where there was there arose great contestation had to do with the fact that groups of largely or almost entirely first generation immigrant Catholics, mostly European, we're talking the earlier phases here, were setting up churches of their own. And they found Mm -hmm. in the United States fertile ground to do that because for one, the, the US church was being managed from afar, we could say, you know, before the appointment <laughs> of a bishop, it was mission territory, right? Mm-hmm. And then you had one bishop, Bishop Carroll, who suddenly was in charge of everybody in the United States and it and it grew from there. But it and then the other thing was that the US being a, a predominantly Protestant nation, you know, then and, and now, although some of that dynamic is shifting, but that meant that there was more of a congregational context with greater lay authority and power in congregational governance. And mm-hmm. so Catholics, again, back to this first generation, largely European Catholics, were kind of setting up shop on their own. And this led to a number of, of issues, and, and Catholic historians have written about this, you know, the, the evils of trusteeism, and and whatnot, it usually comes up under. And so it created some problems for the church and for bishops in managing the flock, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, fast forward to... 1920 and and that that's in a particular time as as far as the the context of what was happening in the U.S. and and globally and and with regard to to war and conflict and everything too but there is this essentially moratorium for some time over that type of of Mm. parish development so to your question about what is different now you know now these personal parishes are emerging through they have a you know they have different histories, different origins, but there is very much a though there's a strong lay emphasis, and in some cases, personal parishes being granted to communities that have gathered for literally decades, um, mm-hmm. there is still very much a a structural component in that bishops are managing their diocese, especially during times of in, intense restructuring, which we've had. Quite a bit since 2002, yeah. especially in the um, crises and, and in terms of financial and, and otherwise for dioceses. And so there have been moments of of having to make these kinds of decisions. And so bishops have uh, used personal parishes, some, not all, but have used personal parishes as a way to to carve out that space, but also so that it is not a something that's entirely done from below, so to say or it you know it's clearly an explicit part of the church because mm-hmm. th- these are very much catholic parishes you know there's there are other yeah. other congregations that that holds a ca- catholic identity quote unquote but aren't aren't a part of the church these very much
0: yeah are. they have no hierarchical recognition that's right or, that's right yeah where's these do. to what extent uh, would would you say that the i you mean know, one of the other you know big sort of social changes for catholicism in the u.s in the 20th century is just basically assimilation Right. And that's right. The, yeah. the the declining sort of ghettoization of Catholics at large. Yes. Is that is that do you think a, a significant contributor to the the attraction to right. personal parishes or the or the, yeah. the rise of them?
1: Right. Great question. So part of what happens too from you know nineteen twenty until you know certainly through Vatican II, even to some extent after, there's this extraordinary emphasis on assimilation, Americanization, and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, some of these terms are are pretty loaded terms, but also elevated in that ideal is the ideal of the territorial parish as an integrated space for all Catholics, uh, regardless of class and race and, you know, any other dynamic of difference. The territorial parish is the place where all all belong and all are mm-hmm. all are apart. Now, fast forward again to more contemporary times, and both in the Catholic Church and in congregations more broadly, you know, if if you look just at the dynamic of of race, for example, uh, congregations remain very racially segregated places. Mm-hmm. You know, Catholic parishes slightly less than other uh, denominations but still you know the vast majority of catholic parishes are are segregated along racial lines and even within a you know quote unquote integrated territorial parish you have people making different choices about which mass times they go to and mm-hmm. sort of creating communities therein and that you know that can have That can be good and bad again sort of you take a a, you can ask the normative question about that but i think what happens in the stories that i've heard now from catholics around the country who have sought out personal parishes is that they need and want a place that is theirs that is their own and so if there's such a strong emphasis on assimilation and on integration Especially for, for example, the Asian and Pacific Islander Catholics, you know, more than three quarters of whom are first-generation immigrants today, and okay. and some, of course, have been here for decades. But even so, they they have that deep connection to a native country. Then they're they're looking for a holistic place and experience where they can integrate their imagery, their their food, their music, and and so forth, and sometimes a shared territorial parish is insufficient to create that that cohesion and community and so that is in part what motivates personal parishes now i should add too that they're still in the minority you know by far in the minority Mm -hmm. so this, this is still a small sample but there is a you know there's a strong thread of of, of these parishes and there have been about there have been a few hundred that have been established since 1983 and within these catholics are finding a different way to do community that's not canonically dependent upon geography to define it
0: what's striking to me both listening to you and, and when i was reading uh, your work earlier is i i was being a bit of sort of self-reflective about my own parish experiences sure <laughs> since college yeah and, and part of what struck me was I used to live in Chicago and and I, I was there you know in my 20s yeah. and there was I mean there was a parish that I lived a couple blocks from like I could have pretty easily walked to that church mm-hmm. but I I went fairly far out of my way right. to go to another one now, and, it, right. and, and I'll be yeah and, and it wasn't I, I mean I, I can't say for sure but I, I think it was another a different territorial parish I don't think it was a personal parish right. but oh yes this, it, this it, just, a lot. it just happened yeah. yeah it just happened to be like this was one of the parishes that either intentionally at the level of the archdiocese or, or the level of the parish had decided, right. We are going to be one of the young adult parishes. Right. <laughs> okay. Like we, we have fam, like we have the family mass, we right. have, you know, uh, the school, we have the kids and everything, but right. every week there is a mass where like, if you're, you know, 20 to 35, like this is the mass to come to. Right. And-
1: <laughs> well, and it's true, you know, and, 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 Parishes, you know, every parish takes on a given cultural characteristic and and also Mm -hmm. makes strategic choices about, you know, what what they're going to spend their money on and their resources on in order to serve a highly heterogeneous public. You know, so we know know (laughs) that happens. And and every time I've moved, that's the first thing I do. You know, you look at, like, well, it's what are all the parishes in the area? It's not, you know, what's my zone (laughs) so we (laughs) we know that happens so then to me sociologically it becomes a question of well why why does the territorial system still exist for one Mm -hmm. uh and so i really you know dive into that question deeply in in the, the longer project and then also you know what what is the consequences of this of that that choosing it's almost like our you know what's whether it's our social media feed or whatnot if we're constantly filtering out voices and people that are dissimilar to us or that we don't want to mm-hmm. hear from then what does that say about you know the espoused value of unity and community in a shared collective catholic church and those are questions that yeah. the polarization book takes on too
0: because there is this you know kind of new new way of ghettoizing in a certain sense i don't right. know if that's the best word but yeah where, where you, you move into the enclave of the like-minded with yourself. Right. And you, you can have your parish that way, your neighborhood that way. You know, I, I live in I live in Tampa now. And when my wife and I were looking at buying houses, a, a lot of the houses uh, that, you know, that were sort of up for sale were, I mean, Florida has a lot of gated communities. It's not, they're, they're not all wealthy communities, just a lot of gated communities. Yes. But it was very easy to find houses that were, of people sort of you know like minded right. uh, similar socioeconomic class similar race all that kind of thing. Right. And we we ended up not going with any of those kinds of houses yeah. for for a lot of reasons but one of them was it, I guess it I don't know it felt inauthentic to us. Mhm. Um mm-hmm. and so we're in a more mixed neighborhood but then there's we have this kind of unreflected we're not sure if we're gentrifiers or not like right. put it. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we struggle yeah. with that and say like the, the parish we go to now which we, we love very dearly has this kind of fascinating thing going on where it's it's a mixed English speaking and Spanish speaking parish, okay. and so they have, you know, they have a, you know, they have a, a Sunday morning English mass, a Sunday morning uh, Spanish mass. They also, and I'd never noticed this before, they have a, a a Saturday evening English vigil and a Saturday evening Spanish vigil. Okay. So they have two different vigil masses on Saturday. They have they have one bilingual mass on Sunday. Right. Uh, and so they're trying in a way to sort of handle the the larger territory it's a part of is a is a mixed territory. Right. And they're doing what they can to maintain this sort of one parish approach but it's 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 very very hard it's hard
1: well and one of the dynamics that has happened in parish trends of late is that parishes are mega sizing too you know they're getting Mm -hmm. larger and larger and that's a resource driven thing too in terms of the number of priests that are available but but to your point about neighborhoods you know this is absolutely driven by in part, by residential segregation too. You know, the, f- the fact that mm-hmm. our, our neighborhoods don't necessarily reflect diversity on all fronts. And, and that comes out of urban planning and suburbanization. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. so many things that, that drive that. And ironically, you know, having talked now to diocesan planners, oftentimes the, the tail is wagging the dog. And to explain that, what they're doing in part is looking at a given parish and seeing who attends there so they'll they'll mm-hmm. map it out and and draw the little dots where parishioners are and then they'll 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 fix the boundaries <laughs> of a parish <laughs> and to reflect who's going there which
0: is so they, they gerrymander they're,
1: it they're, exactly exactly <laughs> and uh, yeah so there's that going on and then i guess you know also playing on what you what you mentioned you use both the term the ghetto and the enclave and there are some interesting differences between those terms and both are useful because mm. you know in part part of what sociologists are paying attention to is is whether it's voluntary or not and there mm. is this this presumption in part about an enclave that there's a voluntary choice choice for strategic reasons and cultural reasons where someone may want to belong to an enclave but if it's mm. if it's more of a forced thing so more of a ghetto a you know this is not voluntary but but the the product of, of circumstance and conditions, then there are some, some potentially different outcomes. So there, mm, you know, that's really helpful. A lot of questions that it that it raises. But I think that the you know the fact is that you know I think the church as a whole, church leaders and also you know parishioners and Catholic lady need to be thinking about. You know we we do make these choices because it feels good to be around others that we feel good around. <laughs> but there are consequences mm-hmm. for that choice in terms of social capital for ourselves and for others and equality, equality in the
0: church. That's really helpful. Thank you. Sure. One thing then that this raises for me, and I'm, I'm curious what your thought would be is what do you, in, in light of the, you know, what changes going on in the parishes and, and the structuring of parishes, the social, the social structures underlying that, what would you say are sort of key issues for the church going forward? you know in the next 10 20 30 years in in dealing with the effects of this or or in responding to sort of how best to uh, how best to manage it
1: right yeah. And this is one of those tricky places where, you know, you ask the sociologist the normative question, right? Because they are,
0: they are there. Right? They
1: are there.
0: You caught me. Yeah.
1: And, and honestly, it's a tough one. It's it's sort of a paradox, right? Because mm-hmm. there there are two values, uh, potentially competing values at play. One is mm. cultural maintenance, you know, especially for first-generation immigrant Catholics. And you know, I, I just did, uh, over the last year or so, I led a A study of Asian Pacific Islander American Catholics for the U.S. Bishops, and they're they're trying to understand API for short, Asian Pacific Islander Catholic. And you know, oftentimes in there, you hear this real urgency around preserving culture for future generations. So there's this the value and need for spaces to be who we are and to be around others who understand that and and I think some of the arguments on that side come from well where else do we do that you know we live in a you know hopefully an integrated world in terms of our our public settings and our educational systems and our neighborhoods now any of those we can actually kind of look at uh, with empirical evidence too but in any case the church is a place where we can really elevate cohesion around a given community. But then the other side of this, right, and the tough thing as far as the, the how best to do this question, the other side of this is is some of the issues that we've already talked about. You know, if, we're,
0: mm-hmm. if the,
1: the vision of the church is this place of heterogeneity and communication across lines of difference, then... Parishes need to be a, a place where that happens or perhaps at the level of the diocese, you know, a place where different parishes can come together and do unifying ministry opportunities that that go mm-hmm. beyond individual parishes. So I think in part, you know, if I if I sort of summarize my answer, it's that there's not one answer for every community. There's not one Mm -hmm. answer for every situation. And and I think there are two potential ways forward. One has to do with you know a good system of communication between leaders in a diocese and the laity and, and a way to communicate desires, whether it's we don't want a personal parish or we do, conversation around that. And then the other is leadership. You know, I it was interesting for me, of course, as a married woman doing all these interviews with priests and bishops especially for this last project (laughs) you know I and I was thinking to myself when I was sitting down and doing these one-on-one interviews like this is so rare for me I don't sit down by myself as a as a woman with you know another priest and have this conversation about really good topics all the time and what that means in part too is that you know, it, it makes me think about what voices are included, what voices are excluded. Certainly, if we look at the leadership of the church in the U.S. context, it doesn't reflect the diversity of the church among American Catholics. And that's increasingly mm. the case. And so as far as, a you know, next steps, I, I hope and I know that, that for many, it's a priority to diversify leadership in order to get voices in there that express, uh, you know, how, how best to meet um the needs of community for for those who are, who are
0: faithful i was struck in your essay by one of the things you say at the end which is that the reality of these personal parishes means that at the kind of micro level you have this real homogenization in a given parish but at the macro level of the church you have these sort of stronger expressions of diversity mm-hmm. because you can have a really clear you can have some parishes that have really clear senses of who they are that are different from you know their their neighbors you know throughout the church right and I I was struck by the way that that you know you, you talk about these kind of competing values that mm-hmm. that represents a, a very clear and kind of structural example of that
1: yeah that's that's how I'm able to sleep at night right <laughs> uh, and you know and I don't know if that's the answer I really don't but yeah. but to me you know having done this work that. to me, that is the most clear path in this, because having heard this, you know, the deep, passionate, you know, responses of folks who say, you know, this is extremely important for us not to be the minority in our, in our integrated parish all the time. We need a place that is ours. So Mm -hmm. to me, I don't think that, denying that is a just pass, path forward, nor do I think that having highly, you know, racially or, or class divided or wholly pol- polarized parishes and communities is the way forward. So if, if the diocese, which is unlike other denominations in the U.S., you know, this is a, a, a useful structure that the church, church has. So there may be ways to have the best of both, you know, in terms of the mm-hmm. community and connection.
0: Yeah, the, there's this theologian Vince Miller who, yes. who writes about yes. uh, yeah he writes yes. he writes about like globalization his more recent stuff mm-hmm. and and he talks about how one of the fears of globalization was was homogenization right that sort of everything would be flattened but what's actually happened is heterogenization which is we're all we're all in different groups but they're like-minded groups for us right um, yeah, and so yeah. You, you've had this So that's, that's been a a change, a kind of unexpected and I guess frustrating change. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to turn back to a a pedagogical question that I I think maybe feeds into this. And I, I I think I read this, but correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you have students help you with your research or participate in your research. I was wondering if you would say more about that and and what it is that you have them do, or how you kind of structure that for for them.
1: Yeah, I can give a couple of different examples, and also just to set up the context, you know, I, I work entirely with undergraduate students, and mm-hmm. so uh, other than serving occasionally on dissertation committees of, of folks who are at different institutions, um, my, my research assistants are all undergraduates, so I, I pitch it to that level. So a few different examples, you know, and, and And I would say in this that doing the research is always an opportunity for teaching, too. One example is when I was putting together the survey for uh, looking at sort of a a national look at Asian and Pacific Islander Catholics. And and on that, uh, worked also with Stephen Cherry and Jerry Park on that. But I had my students help in structuring the questions and inputting the questions in Qualtrics, uh, which is an online survey software system Mm -hmm. and so we talked about sort of the nature of questions and question types and this particular survey of course was translated into 13 different languages (laughs) and so some of our our students had language abilities too that that were pertinent to the cause and so you know along the way teaching them about that particular method another time doing the personal parish research I took a couple students with me to do field research at one of the case study dioceses, and so we we drove for what turned out to be a 10 to 12 hour drive because it suddenly started <laughs> snowing. It was not supposed to be that long, but it was yeah, it was a little bit frightening even, but we made it. And, and this was in April, by the way. It should not have. Snowed yeah. So we, uh, and they went with me to all of the, the parishes in this particular diocese, and they went along on every one of the interviews. And we, uh, you know, talked beforehand about the plan for, you know, how to conduct an interview and the kinds of questions to ask. And, you know, uh, usually I, I tell students, you know, you need to go in with the sort of, so- and being a, a socially acceptable incompetent sort of like like you need to ask questions (laughs) in a way where they don't you know they don't think that you don't know anything but you also want to pretend like you sort of don't know anything because you want to hear the raw uh, authentic responses of of respondents Hmm. so they were with me for all of that field research and interviews so so those are a couple examples but i i look for opportunities where you know, students can have these sort of hands-on experiences. And mm-hmm. of course they're also going through institutional review board ethical training so that they know what to expect and also so that we can protect all the participants along the way.
0: That's wonderful. That sounds I mean, it sounds like a great opportunity for the students. Are they are they primarily majors or
1: actually do they no. They help you out
0: it, or? it tends okay. to be a
1: mix, but I, I worked with sociology majors I've worked with religion major majors I've worked with with Spanish majors you know just across the board but you know I'm looking for folks who are passionate about this kind of work and curious about it and have you know of course good work ethic and and all that but I but I do always see it as a learning opportunity and so in that I I manage it a lot you know I make sure that I provide the supervision that they need because this work is really important and so I, I i help them navigate what what is new to them
0: as as a last kind of bigger question before i get to the the, the closing oh yeah five <laughs> questions, right. which i can only imagine you've been preparing for it. <laughs> um, i was wondering i was wondering if you could say something about and especially i mean you're at a you're at a liberal arts uh you know undergraduate institution it's a, sm- it's a smaller school you're not you know you're not teaching grad students that kind of thing I'm kind of wondering how you go about balancing your teaching and your scholarship and what kind of advice you might have for, you know, grad students or or early career people who, you know, have not yet crossed the tenure threshold. Yes. uh, And that kind of thing. The million
1: dollar question. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think that context, again, matters here, and we we uh, constantly adapt to expectations in our given institutional context, but I, I would just add, too, as a, as a preview on this, but that what you love also matters, you know, and so I'm, I'm in a mm-hmm. context where... Both, well, especially teaching is is valued heavily, and scholarship is defined more broadly. And yet, my 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 writing and my research is life giving to me, both in the classroom mm-hmm. and in the work that I do. So, you know, we all make particular choices about that and prioritize prioritize that. But yes, I ha- I have consumed a number of. Books uh, in this area, uh, you know, Robert Boyce, of course, is <laughs> the most uh, well-known one. I actually have uh, belonged more recently to the Academic Writing Club online, and in fact, I'm even a coach now for their their program. But it it creates a system of accountability for daily regular writing, Ooh. and you know, for me, I try to make really careful choices about my time. And I tend to stack my teaching as tightly as possible Mm. on, you know, in blocks of time or particular days so that I can open up spaces and hours on on other days to devote to the quieter process of, of writing. And, you know, there's also Family stuff here too, you know. And she mm-hmm. didn't even ask yeah. about that. But, you know, I have a couple young kids, and <laughs> and that's that's not easy, you know. And, and my spouse works as well, and so we we are constantly juggling but uh you know i take a writing retreat each year and that is is life oh that's awesome i
0: love it Um, what do you what do you do for that
1: so my writing retreat i usually go for roughly four days or so and i you know i wave to the husband and kids (laughs) like see you later so i I literally (laughs) leave town uh and i go to a uh Bed uh, bed and breakfast type place in Chattanooga. In fact, this is the third year I did it, and this year when I checked in, like, hey Trisha, you know they <laughs> laid out, all, um, and you know minimal minimalist accommodations, and I bring along my my computer and I caffeinate heavily, and I have a, a set of goals that I try to achieve each each day, and then for the retreat and its entirety, and mainly I just get to work longer hours and i don't have to worry about any sort of scheduling mine or anyone else's um, and so that i look forward to that every year but of course you can't just do one week of writing a year so you know no no it's no. more about the the regular routine that that happens every day throughout but but that is uh, definitely a gift to be able to do that too oh and i listen to awesome. to a song from hamilton to get to get <laughs> not that, called non-stop which one Nonstop.
0: Nonstop. Yeah, Yeah, because it talks about
1: writing. You know, it says, (laughs) "How how does he write? Like he's running out of time or something like that." And so every writing day, like I turn that on, I get all pumped up. (laughs)
0: That's a great idea. (laughs) I wanna. I like to make memes that I print yes. out and put on the bulletin yeah, board it's... above my desk and one of the one of the ones I'm working on is it's a picture of Hamilton but it says write like you're running out of time exactly
1: okay can you because send that you to are. me because that is exactly <laughs> I will, I will. yeah that's, that's exactly the song and I have it running through my head all day but it does create this urgency because you know book especially with books book projects take a long time but yeah. if you can commit to them then you know it, it happens so
0: yeah, I, I have one due at the end of this year. Oh. It's, <laughs> it's on my mind. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> and your soundtrack, right? <laughs> yep,
0: yep. yep. <laughs> awesome. So to wrap up with my my less serious questions, to to start with, are you 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 mentioned uh, a few months ago that you like to get uh, heavily caffeinated on your <laughs> writing retreats? True. Are you are True. you a coffee person or a tea person?
1: Definitely coffee and a particular kind of coffee which is the vanilla latte which some probably would say that's not even really coffee you know it's mostly milk <laughs> so i guess i'm a milk drinker but yeah uh, definitely the vanilla lattes just buy an IV. And, and,
0: and so is that like an all-day thing or is that like a one done in the morning or
1: uh usually two but i do try to uh, minimize it to the a.m hours okay
0: okay. <laughs> okay all right number two If you had your choice of superpowers, what would you pick?
1: Well, my son is four years old, so he's really my source for all things superpower, (laughs) Um, I must say. But I, right now, am trying to learn the mandolin, so I would love Mm. to suddenly have the superpower of being able to play really all instruments, why limit it to just one, right?
0: Yeah, no, reach for the stars. (laughs) Yeah,
1: we'll start with the mandolin and then then go from there.
0: (laughs) Awesome. I love it. That fittingly feeds into question three, which is what would be your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song?
1: Okay. Well, you know, I, I, this is, this is a tricky one for me because I tend to, like some of the songs that some of the folks I write about totally hate. Um, (laughs) I've literally, I've heard the phrase, the happy clappy guitar mass many times. And Mm -hmm. that is me. Like I am looking for (laughs) the happy clappy guitar mass. Uh, And so the songs I would say, especially the songs I like are, you know, when I was first learning to play the guitar, they needed to be in the chord structure of A, E and B. So mm-hmm. that narrows it down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> you know, mandolin is changing that a little bit. G's a little easier, to finger. But in any case, you know, I, and, I, and I do love the a cappella, the more traditional songs, too. But, but you know, I, I have. The, the number of these non-denominational churches and the, the influence that they have had on Catholic worship too. I have a heart for that because there's a mm-hmm. there's a real emotion that comes in the liturgy. I think through that that kind of music for me. So whether it's you know sanctuary or uh, <laughs> these sort of praise songs, these are as far as what moves me personally. That that's where it is.
0: <laughs> yeah. One one thing I'm kind of wondering. You know, you're mentioning the mandolin, and I'm thinking about you being in Tennessee. Are there, like, have you been to churches or to parishes where there's ever, like, a bluegrass mass? Is that a thing that exists? Oh,
1: gosh. That would be so awesome. Am I just
0: inventing that in my head now? Uh,
1: (laughs) Well, you know, that needs to come out of your head and into church. (laughs) There may very well be in terms of Protestant denominations. You know, certainly mm-hmm. the, the Catholic parishes here, and and I think you know, and somewhat indicative of national trends too, and leadership and whatnot. But they they tend to err more on more the traditional side mm-hmm. in, in terms of music and and even in in some of the Latin hymns making a reappearance in a number of different contexts. But so I haven't mm-hmm. seen that, but I I would love that, and it may very well be that there is more of that. Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to ask around.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is this is this is now a challenge for it our is. listeners okay, to either let problem. us know if there is if there is one or if not to like okay. do a setting of one. the mass parts that's in right. bluegrass. Okay, totally. So, all right, that's good. I'm on it. So number four, of whom or what would you be the patron saint?
1: Well, you know, I think for me, one of the themes that comes up in terms of my my life and my upbringing and the sociological perspective is, is this idea of the stranger, you know, and being, being sort of a stranger to hmm. what is the most familiar or understanding the experience of, of the stranger. And I'm also sort of obsessed with like strange weather and strange crimes and strange news. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I think I, I may go for that. So, so, you know, patron saint of the stranger or strangers. And that's sort of a shout out to George Zimmel who wrote a, a, a classic social theorist years ago about, about the stranger.
0: <laughs> that's a good answer. I uh, have not gotten that one before. <laughs> Uh, last one if you had pursued some other career than what you do now what do you think that would have been or what do you what would you like that have to have been
1: see there's this sense of finality to your question as if I don't have a chance still to do all these things. <laughs> which I don't like about the question. So I'm, I'm going to pretend I mean, like you, you
0: can rephrase it. If okay, you, if you decide gonna, that this, if you were going to yeah. just drop don't sociology gosh, religion, my turkey <laughs> and my and, dream and go and be like, you know what? I got something else I want to do right now. Right. What would that something else be?
1: Oh, so many things, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with urban planning. You know, I, I love mm. Jane Jacobs book, death and life of American cities. So trends and new urbanism, I could totally get into urban planning, you know, architecture, I, I've done increasingly various media type stuff in terms of television and otherwise. And so I have this dream of being like Shankar Vedantam on NPR or something. <laughs> and then if all else fails, then definitely go in the winery route. So just starting mm. the winery sounds pretty good it's to a me. a solid choice. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'll no, see if Yeah.
0: No, it's good that you've, you've kept some options for yourself. Oh, I thanks. like that.
1: That's great. <laughs> Keeping it open. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, uh, thank you so much. This has been really wonderful. I'm glad we got the chance to talk.
1: Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for the invitation. Great to chat. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.